Welcome to Green Tree Community Church. My name is Tom Ricks. I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree. It's good to have all of you with us in worship this morning. If you are uh, seated on the inside here in the middle of the room or on the middle over on the sides, if you grab those attendance books and if you don't mind, sign those and pass them. We, uh, we try to keep track of each other here at Green Tree. Uh, make sure that we uh, have solid information so that we can keep up with each other, let you know when things are going on, when things change, when things stay the same. Uh, when I spill water out of my water bottle because I can't put the cap on correctly, that got it. Um, so if you would please uh, let us know that you're here today. If you're visiting and you would like to know more about Green Tree, you can sign one of those books and give us your contact information. Let us know what questions you may have and we'll be happy uh, to reach out to you uh, and answer any questions, but we're glad to have all of you this morning. After the service, if you're new, just so you know, we have coffee and donuts in between service. We have, I think we serve 1,500 donut holes every uh, Sunday, and some of those have your name on them, right? So, and you determine the number. Uh, if you're in third grade, typically it's around a dozen. Uh, if you're a little bit older, it might be one or two, but we hope that you'll stick around and enjoy uh, some fellowship with us after uh, the service. Uh, we invite you to turn in your Bibles to, if you have one, Luke chapter 4. We are uh, in our, our seventh, seven, eight, nine, that's correct, seventh Sunday in our sermon series, The Way to Your Matters is the Law, as we consider justice and mercy and faithfulness uh, from the context of Scripture, but in the context of our lives in the 21st century here in the United States. We have uh, this Sunday and two more Sundays in this series, and then we'll begin our summer series, which is going to be an Old Testament study on some of the kings of the divided kingdom uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament. So we're going to see a lot of, a lot of uh, villains and, uh, and even a couple of good guys. Uh, that'll be our study for the summer. But for the next few weeks, we're going to continue on this topic. In May of 2006, uh, just like in every other year for, uh, for about the last 80 to 100 years, people tried to climb to the peak of Mount Everest. Perhaps you've never heard of a man named Lincoln Hall, but Lincoln Hall, one of his life goals was to ascend all the way to the top of Everest. Another man that perhaps you have never heard of and they didn't know each other is a man named Daniel Major. And Daniel Major had the same goal. Now, if you're going to climb Everest, I've, I've climbed one 14er in Colorado and it about did me in. Anybody have like 10 or 12 or 14 of the 14ers or more than that? We got, Jimmy, how many do you have now? You got 33 of them and they're six. 54, so you're almost home. You're going to make it. Uh, if you've ever done any climbing at all, uh, whether it's just a walk-up or technical, it's, it's absolutely exhausting. So thinking about climbing Everest is like insane. It, it, it's one of the of feats in the world that very, very few people have ever attained. But Lincoln Hall in May of 2006 got within about two hours of the summit when he, was colla- when he collapsed and was left for dead by his guides. In fact, when they got back to their base camp, they reported to the crew what had happened, and they broadcast news of this down uh, the mountain so that his family could be alerted that he had passed away. The next day, Daniel Major was on the same trek. He was about two hours from the summit when he came across uh, Lincoln Hall and found that he actually wasn't dead, that he was very much alive, but he was in very, very bad shape. All of his life, Daniel Major wanted to climb Everest. It was singularly focused goal of his. And yet at that moment, he abandoned his quest. Just two hours from the summit, 
And he attended to Lincoln Hall, saving his life and brought him back down the mountain. Four hours worth of carrying him just to get him to a place where he could survive. You may not also have heard of David Sharp. David Sharp was also a man who had a goal to climb Mount Everest, but he actually died on the summit two weeks prior to this experience that Lincoln Hall had, while dozens of climbers passed him in order that they could achieve their lifetime goal. Do you think that Kirkwood is any better today because Green Tree's here? Do you think that our presence in this community has an impact on people that are seeking out God or wondering about God or in a bad place and hurting and they need someone to stop along the way and offer them some spiritual care? That's the question that we're going to consider this morning as we think about the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So I'll remind you of that verse as we go to, uh, we go to Matthew 23, 23, this is our theme verse where Jesus says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, you tithe, mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And then along that same line, chapter four of Luke, starting in verse 16, reading through verse 21. Speaking about Jesus, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for every person that's in this room this morning. Father, I thank you that I get to be here among uh, fellow disciples as we uh, journey along with you in our lives. I thank you that week in and week out you give us the opportunity to worship because you know that it nourishes our souls. You know that it's good for us to come together uh, as we seek you. Because before we even had the inclination of of trying to find you, you had reached out to us. Through your spirit and through your word, through the ministry and the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Those of us who are described in this passage, uh, the poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed, have been given new life, been given life eternal, not because we've earned it, not because we're good church folk, but because you are gracious to sinners and to rebels like us. Father, we cross paths with so many people who are struggling that sometimes we almost are blind to the the pain that's around us because it's simply so common. It's nothing to hear of another friend who has cancer, another person who's struggling in their marriage, or someone who is uh, living a life of poverty, 
uh, with no hope for a future. Lord, these, these stories are all too common to us, and at times we get jaded, and we forget about your grace. So we pray that you would teach us this morning. We pray that you would pour your truth into our lives, that we wouldn't be resistant, that we wouldn't be filled with self-righteousness nor with doubt, but that our hearts would be stirred by the glory that is the grace of Jesus. Lord, you know I am not adequate to uh, teach this or to explain it. We don't come here to hear my words. We seek your heart, your message. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would teach us. Forgive me my sin. Don't let me be a hindrance to anybody learning this morning, hearing from you this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Our sermon in a sentence this morning is very short because it's summertime, so you shorten everything up a little bit, right? God practices what he preaches, do we? That's the question before the house this morning. Before I jump into the text and we begin to study, I want to go down one quick side road. Very briefly, I want us to look at verse 16 for just a moment because we won't come back to it later on uh, in the passage. But verse 16 says this about Jesus. He came to Nazareth where where he had been brought up. So Jesus has been uh, traveling around Galilee and he comes back to his hometown. But then the next sentence says something interesting that we usually skip over and rarely apply to our own lives. It says, "And and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. In other words, Jesus was in the habit of going to church. Let's just put it in our uh, local uh, vernacular for the 21st century. Jesus uh, was customarily found Sabbath in and Sabbath out, or we might say Sunday in and Sunday out, although it was Saturday for him. You could find him in church. I meet a lot of people who say, you know, I don't really need church to be a Christian. I don't really need church attendance. I'm not into all that legalistic, you know, you got to show up and do the right stuff. Uh, in order to be a good Christian. I I can follow Jesus on my own. Now, I I can't refute that. I can't say that that isn't true because certainly there have been people who have been isolated without other Christians, without other believers. They found themselves alone in their faith and they didn't have access to a church or to a fellowship and they certainly were able to follow Jesus. There's nothing in scripture that says believe in Jesus and go to church and you'll be saved. It simply says believe in Jesus in your heart, confess him with your mouth and you will be saved. However, I would guess that if Jesus needed to go to church, (laughs) so do I. (laughs) I would guess that if Jesus set as a priority the worship of his father, right? The fellowship of his uh, folks that had the same faith, if Jesus didn't think that skipping church was, was probably not such a good idea, then I probably shouldn't either. Jesus isn't legalistic. Jesus doesn't have a legalistic bone in his body. He is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus was humble and compassionate and gracious, but he understood that worshiping God was absolutely fundamental to who he was. I would do a pop quiz and ask who knows the fifth Baptism question that we ask when we baptize our infants, but that's not very fair because uh, I have it actually in my Bible, so I don't forget it. Uh, but I want to remind us about this question when we ask parents. Do you promise to use every means provided by God, including faithful participation in the life of the church, to bring your child up in the loving discipline of the Lord? We don't go to church for the sake of going to church. We go to church because it draws us into a relationship with God. And we are tempted in our day and age. I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm tempted not to show up some Sundays, okay? Right? 
heard about the guy that skipped church and, you know, he confessed it to God and said, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sorry I'm not there. He said, well, probably our, you know, the, your parishioners are probably sorry you're not there too, right? So there are times when it would be just a whole lot easier to just, you know, kind of take the day off. And I'm sure there are a lot of times when you're trying to get kids ready and, and, and get to church or you've had a really busy, hectic week and you think, you know, I don't really, I, I'm just going to skip this week. Again, I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I want you to see in this verse that it was important for Jesus to be in worship. And therefore, I think it's right to conclude that it's important for us as well. But what about this question? God practices what he preaches, do we? Are we really uh, following him when it comes to, to the outworking of the gospel in our lives? So I want to look at this passage this morning in two different ways. The first is I want, to, I want to look at the identity of the people about whom Jesus speaks. And then I want to look at God's identity and see uh, how those two things come together. And when I say the, the identity of those about whom Jesus speaks in this passage, what I really mean is our identity, your identity and my identity, because he's speaking uh, to and about us this morning. So he comes to, the, uh, comes to the synagogue, and he's seen as a guest preacher. He's coming to his hometown. Folks have heard about him and about his ministry, so he's handed the scroll. There isn't technically a, an assigned pastor on every given Sunday in, day and a, in Jesus' day and age in the Jewish synagogue, but fame about him was spreading, and so when he was there, folks said, well, let's see what Jesus has to say. And so the scroll was handed to him by the attendant, and he unrolled it. And he looked for a particular passage. Notice what it says. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. So he had a particular message in mind. And then he reads from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to those who are blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. In this particular sentence or two of Isaiah, we see a description of humanity that is desperate. We see a description of humanity in a, in a, in a way that is not how we would like to describe ourselves. When, when I meet someone new, I don't rush up to them and say, if you want to know something about me, let me tell you something. I'm spiritually poor. I'm spiritually oppressed. I'm, I'm spiritually blind. I'm spiritually a captive to my own sin uh, unless God does something about it. Try that at a dinner party sometime. So he says, so tell me a little about yourself. Oh man, I am spiritually bankrupt. <laughs> They're like, it's so nice to meet you. Sally, how are you today? You know, that probably isn't gonna fly real well, but that's the description of, that we're given. The first is that humanity is spiritually poor, that we are out without the spiritual resources we need to live and to thrive. Jesus actually uh, thinks it's important that we understand this, and he compliments it when we do. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed or to be congratulated are those that are poor in spirit. In other words, those that know that they're spiritually bankrupt. That's the first step in your relationship with God is understanding how much you don't have and how much he has to offer. And so Jesus says, you're blessed if you understand this, that you're spiritually poor. You will inherit the kingdom of heaven. To be spiritually poor means that we cannot save ourselves. But Jesus goes on to say that Isaiah says that not only is humanity spiritually poor, but that we're actually spiritual captives. And we're captives to our own flawed nature. I want to take you to Romans chapter 7 for just a moment. 
And I want to perhaps remind you or show you for the very first time what the Apostle Paul thought about himself apart from Christ. When he took, when he took his faith out of the picture, uh, what was left? And he says this, I find this to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil is close at hand. I delight in God's law in my inner being or in my mind, but I see in, in my life, in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me or who will save me? What Paul is saying there is that apart from the grace of God, Apart from the, from the saving power of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God's word in my life, if I'm left to my own devices, I will fail every time. My inclination is always to sin. My inclination is always to selfishness. My inclination is always to putting me first and not thinking about others. My, my inclination is to rebel against God. And he's not talking about an outside force or an outside influence. You know, my mom used to say, hang around with good people and you'll probably be a pretty good person, right? Bad company corrupts good character. Now, there's some truth in that, but when you compare yourself to God, the truth is, is that everybody's warped, that everybody's broken, and that, and that doesn't matter who, who you hang out with because inside of you, inside of Tom Ricks, dwells some really awful, awful stuff, and I can't save myself, and I, I lend my voice to Paul's. What a wretched man is the pastor of Green Tree Community Church. Who will save him? Who will deliver him? I'm a captive to my own flawed condition. Uh, I was reminded of this in fifth grade at the field day. Anybody remember fifth grade field day? Fourth, fifth grade field day and where you got to run uh, and you got to do the standing broad jump and you got to do, you know, all you, you were introduced to kind of track and field. At least in my day, that's kind of when it happened in fifth grade field day. And I immediately fell in love with the high jump. I thought the high jump was the greatest sporting event known to mankind. And they put that bar out and they said, jump over it. And when the bar was set at three feet, seven inches, I had no problem clearing the bar. But then they moved it up to four feet. And then they moved up a little bit higher. And I realized I was a captive to flat feet and no jumping ability whatsoever. <laughs> and that was never going to change. No, and, I, and, I, and I've really worked to keep myself low to the ground now to make sure I, I don't get a nosebleed from getting too high, right? Okay. But that's who I was. I was, I was a captive to, to the body that I had. Paul says we're captive to our own brokenness. Isaiah says we're captives to our own brokenness. So the prophet Isaiah says humanity is spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, spiritual captives, but it also says that we're spiritually blind. I came to preach recovering of sight to the blind. In other words, we're incapable of finding our way to God. We may have some creative ideas about God and who he is and some notions, but ultimately, spiritually, we cannot find our way. Uh, Jesus healed a blind guy one time. He did it several times, but in chapter 9 of John's gospel, uh, Jesus healed a guy of his blindness. And the religious leaders of the day get really ticked off because they don't like Jesus, which is odd to think about, that you, get you have such dislike for a person that you don't care that somebody else got healed, that you're actually angry about it. And so they get into this back and forth with Jesus about, about what's happened and who he is and is he really who he claims to be, and they're really disgruntled upset. And so Jesus says to him, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see me may see, 
and that those who see may become blind. Jesus said, if you think you can see, you're ultimately going to be blind. And the Pharisees get really upset. Are we also blind? Right? Wait a minute, Jesus. We're the spiritually enlightened ones. We're the ones that see. We're the ones that know. We're the ones that understand. And Jesus says this, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Anytime I say that I can see apart from the grace of God, my, my guilt remains. Right? When I claim to not be spiritually blind, when I claim to need no need with my spiritual sight is when I find myself in trouble. Because the prophet Isaiah says, and Jesus reinforces it, and it's absolutely 100% correct, I can never on my own strength, in my own ability, find my way to God. If he does not remove the blindness from my eyes, I will be lost. And fourthly, our identity is one of being spiritually oppressed. Now, oppression is a little bit different than this word captivity. Uh, the notion of, of the captives being set free is, as we said, something that happens inside of us. But oppression is something that happens from the outside. Just think of someone who's a bully, someone who picks on others, someone who uses their strength to harm others. And so Jesus says, as he quotes Isaiah, that uh, this one who's coming is going to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, that word is used only 10 times in the New Testament, and mostly it's actually used in the context of the Gospels when someone is bringing another person to Jesus for healing, but it's not physical healing that they need. They're not blind. They're not crippled. Uh, it's got nothing to do with their physical health. It has to do with their spiritual well-being, and they're being oppressed by an evil spirit. They're being oppressed by our enemy, by the, by the evil one, the devil. And, and the prophet Isaiah says, as it kind of comes to the, the pinnacle of our struggle, right, if it weren't enough for our own condition to cause our own problems of being poor and being captives and being blind, there's also one who is out to destroy us. There's one who lives for our demise. And so the, our identity is described by the prophet Isaiah and is by endorsed by the Lord Jesus himself is actually pretty bleak. It's not really uh, complimentary. Uh, it ought not make you go, wow, this is, really, this is really great. I'm so happy that these four descriptors uh, accurately touch my life, but they are true. The question isn't whether they're true or not. The question is whether or not I see myself the way God sees me. Why would God go to the, 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 the trouble to explain this to me if it weren't true? But if it's true, I need to understand that, that the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophet Isaiah is talking about people in distress, people that are lost, people that are hopeless, people that are without spiritual resources to save themselves. And I may just bristle at that. They, that might bother me. I might say, well, you know, I, I may be not the greatest person in the world, but I'm certainly not the worst, right? I'm certainly better than some number of people, and God's going to take that into consideration, right? And that is uh, sometimes the way we talk to ourselves to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, but it actually is absurd when you stop and think about it. Look at it in this context. Let's say that you and I are in a, in a, in a sailing boat, and we're going to sail across the Atlantic Ocean. And we have all, we, we've got a good sailboat and we're out there. Uh, we're having a great time. We're making good headway and we're about a thousand miles from land when a storm blows up and, and we were getting kind of cocky. So we didn't have our life jackets on and we get blown overboard and our, and our sailboat sinks. Now we're a thousand miles away from land. You're an Olympic swimmer. You can swim without any problem at all, 30 miles, 
I'm a dog paddler. I can't get that far, but I have pretty good lungs and pretty good strength. I can get two miles. So you look at me and say, well, I'm a lot better off than you because I can swim 30 miles when you can only swim two. The facts are we're a thousand miles away from land. It doesn't matter. (laughs) You're going to drown within 970 miles of land and I'm going to drown within 998 miles of land. Really? (laughs) Does it matter? When we say things like, you know, God ought to take into account the good stuff I do. It's like saying I can, I can swim a couple miles before I drown. Because the immensity of my sin and the weight of my guilt so far outweighs any goodness that is within me. That unless I understand and actually embrace my identity apart from Christ, there is no hope. I will continue to be spiritually poor. I will continue to be a captive to my own brokenness, unable to find my way and fighting against a foe that will completely overwhelm me. I must see my identity for what it is. You say, Tom, what does this have to do with whether or not we practice what we preach? Well, let's take a moment and look at God's identity in this text, the exact same verses, and look at what Jesus says through the prophet Isaiah about this one who is the Messiah. So instead of looking at the the condition of humanity, we're now going to look at the attitude and the actions of the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. God has an intended purpose. And so he, he is gifting me with the power of the spirit. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and he did his ministry and he executed his care for others, completely empowered by the spirit of God. The spirit of the, well, why would God send his spirit? What does he want to do? God intends to appoint me to proclaim good news to the poor. God's intention is to proclaim good news to the poor. What's good news to the poor? If you've ever been in poverty, if you've ever been in a place where you simply don't have the resources to care for you, a pat on the back isn't good news. If you've ever been in a place where you cannot help yourself, you, cannot, you can't find a job that will make ends meet. Somebody encouraging you, somebody smiling, saying, hang in there, brother, hang in there, sister, is of no value. The good news that comes to the poor is when there's someone who will spend their wealth on your behalf, will alleviate the death grip that poverty has upon you. Uh, I, I remember when my education in this started probably about 15 years ago when Cindy started working uh, at Kirkwood High School with kids at risk, uh, students who were failing either a class or failing an entire grade. And I was astounded to learn very unscientifically, but I guarantee you it plays out. And we've actually shown some of these, uh, this data on our screen uh, in recent weeks, the direct correlation between poverty and struggling in school. It's astounding how much poverty plays in a person's life from the very earliest of ages. And, and, and my kids grew up in a very modest middle income kind of home, but they were light years ahead of children who were growing up in absolute poverty. And the only good news you can give to someone who's poor is we're going to try to help you out of that poverty and erase its impact on your life. And the same is true spiritually, that God is spiritually rich He, within God dwells all life and all glory and all majesty and all grace. And he shares that the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. You don't have to be poor anymore. 
There's someone who's come who's going to care for you. But he also says in this verse 18 that I've come to set it free those who are captives and also those who are oppressed. He notice that, that he, he's proclaiming liberty to both, uh, both uh, issues. One is my own sinfulness, right? But he's also proclaiming liberty to uh, being oppressed. He's going to get the bully off of my back. He's going to indwell me and, 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 and his spirit's going to live in me in a way that frees me from the grip of my own sin and the evil one's power over me. He's going to do for me what I absolutely could not do for myself. That is his firm intention. Uh, I don't know if you've read this book or not, but if you like good books, you should absolutely read Hampton Side's uh, book. came out in 2002 called The Ghost Soldiers. The Ghost Soldiers is the story of the, of the very first Army Ranger um, uh, um, mission that was in, uh, in World War II in the South Pacific. Uh, and there were 500 POWs that had been left in a prisoner war camp uh, close to Cavatuan, a uh, city in the Philippines. And as MacArthur landed and as the American forces made their way further and further inland, uh, many of the POWs were being, were being murdered by their, uh, by their captors. And so they were, uh, the, the army was alerted to this particular POW camp and 121 uh, United States Army Rangers and about 200 Filipino guerrillas went 30 miles behind enemy lines to rescue uh, these 500 POWs, many of whom couldn't even walk. They were so malnourished. They'd been so broken by the, by the torture and the imprisonment and, and the, the pain that they had endured over several years that, that when the, uh, the rescue uh, group got to the POW camp, over half of them had to be put on carts, not just kind of helped along, but put on carts. They were that broken. They were that oppressed. That's what their captivity had done to them. We need to understand ourselves in that light, that, that that's spiritually what's happened to us, but our rescuer has come. God's intention is that we would be set free if you've ever seen the movie uh, on this called The Great Raid, if you watch it to the very end of the movie and then, and then keep watching, okay, you got to go all the way to the end, uh, and you're going to see real pictures of this from the, from the prisoner of war camp all the way to the, the ship bringing these men home, docking in San Francisco Harbor and being reunited with their family. It's really, really cool because these men have not only been saved, but now they've been strengthened. Now, now they've been literally set free. They, they have their legs under them again. They have the ability to, to engage in life again. And that's what God's Messiah is doing. He's coming to, to bring liberty to the captives and the oppressed. He's also bringing sight to the blind. Come to set uh, to free and to offer recovery for the blind. In other words, allow us to see clearly the pathway of faith in Christ Jesus. If you think about it this way, that, that before Jesus comes, you might have some inkling about him, but you don't know him and you certainly don't worship him or love him. But when he comes into your life, when his spirit and his word and invades your life, it's like the old V8 commercial. Oh, I could have had a V8. You're like, oh my gosh, why didn't I, why didn't I think about this earlier? I can have Jesus. Now you see clearly spiritually. That's what the Messiah intends to do. And so the summation is what? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you look at that, if, if you've been 
uh, crushed by poverty and you're now enriched, right? If you've been a captive to, you, to your own brokenness and you've been set free from that, if, you, if the scales have fallen off your eyes and you're no longer blind and now the bully's been kicked out and, and he no longer has any power over you, you would say, that's the year of my favor. <laughs> that's the time for me to have a party, right? Because I've been set free. But notice what it says. It's the year of the Lord's favor. God delights in erasing spiritual poverty. God is overjoyed at the sense of setting you free from your sin and from the oppression of the evil one. God is giddy about the spiritual blindness falling off of your eyes so that you can see Jesus Christ for who he is. And that's the appropriate pinnacle of this passage. And Jesus folds it up, rolls it up, and he hands it back to the attendant. And he sits down and he preaches a one-sentence sermon. Wouldn't you like it if the pastor preached a one? Maybe I'll do that sometime. Right? <laughs> I'm not, y'all would freak out. Y'all would not know what to do with yourselves, right? Especially y'all up here that look and can see the monitors and know how much more time I have, which is five minutes and 17 seconds. Um, somebody's keeping tabs on me. Uh, what was I talking about? I look back at my note. Thank you. Who is, who is this Messiah? One sermon sentence. Jesus says this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says, it's me. Leon Morris, who's a commentator on this passage, writes the following. Jesus saw himself as coming with good news for the world's troubled people. And that's who he is. That's who he continues to be to this day. That's what the cross and, and the resurrection were all about, to set us free, which means we don't have that old identity anymore. It still lingers. You're still going to sin every once in a while. You're still going to mess it up sometimes. You're, you're not perfect until you get to heaven. You'll, you'll still feel some of that, but you've been set free by the, by, the, by the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. I've been set free. We have a new identity. That's what, what makes me ask the question, God practices what he preaches, do we? Because God went to all that trouble so that we could be set free. And the only way that happened was because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had to die in order to fulfill these words. In order to preach this one sentence sermon, Jesus had to go to the cross. If he didn't go to the cross, it wouldn't be true. The prophecy wouldn't have been fulfilled. We would have been waiting for another. But because Jesus has defeated sin and death and hell, we now have a new identity. We now are called to join with him in his care. We now are spiritually enriched by God's grace and salvation so that we can have new life, yes. So that we can be in heaven for eternity, yes. But also so that we can join him in sharing that with others. That's why it's the question, do you think Kirkwood or the surrounding area, not to be just Kirkwood, but kind of our sphere of influence here in St. Louis, the people you know and the people I know, do you think they're any better off because we're here? Do you think spiritually they're any better off? Do you, do you think the, the person who drove me to the airport the other day is any better off because I was in her car for 20 minutes between Kirkwood and, and Lambert? Do you think that anything spiritual, any, any benefit came to her because of that? Should be, Right? Do you think any of those kids that, that Cindy works with week in and week out are any better to have a Christian in their classroom? Absolutely. There's no question about it. Do we understand our new identity is to be spiritually enriched, not just so that we can experience God's grace, but so that we can share it with others. We have been set free. 
to reject our old habits of sin and the influence of Satan. Why? In order to be used by God to help others escape their prison. I would dare say there are people within 500 yards of this building right now that are, that are captured by the oppression of Satan, that are struggling with their own sinfulness and don't know that there's any hope for them. I would dare say there are people that you come across every day. I know there are people that I interact with on a daily basis that, that fit that bill. Do I understand that one of the reasons why God has set me free is to go back and to get others and to bring them along? My new identity says that I am fully envisioning God's kingdom through the Lord Jesus. Why? So that I can show others the way, not, not to Green Tree, but to him. I mean, people come to Green Tree, that's great. But, but we're, not in, we're not in the business of saying, hey, God, would you come bless what we're doing here at Green Tree? Right? That, that's not the, uh, the calling that's been placed on our lives. Our responsibility is to say, God, where are you going and how can I come along with you? And Lord, what you're doing, how, how can I be part of that? That's what we need to say collectively as a congregation and it's what we need to say individually as disciples of Jesus. And where is Jesus going? He's going to the poor. He's going to the oppressed. He's going to the captives. He's going to the people that are blind and he's bringing new life, and he invites us to go with him. We are free to join God in his work. We're free to practice what we preach. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you. And even as I say that, it seems so shallow to say we thank you for the grace of Jesus. But Lord, we we do. Our hearts are filled with thanks. When we think about how, how badly lost we were, uh, how, how much of a captive we were, how we were literally spiritually blind, and, and you erased all of that. And your power was greater than all of that to the extent that through faith in you, we now have new life. We have a new set of eyes. We have a new spiritual currency in our life. And we're no longer under oppression. Lord, help us to remember it doesn't stop there. Help us to remember that, that you have set us free, not just that we would enjoy a new relationship with you, but so that we could follow you into the homes and the schools and the workplaces and the neighborhoods where you're going. I think about this coming Saturday in 2028 and the chance we'll have to go into to neighborhoods and to homes and to, and to help other people with uh, in, in some physical way to, to help uh, give a kid a bike to, to fix something that's broken in somebody's house. Lord, I thank you that that's a picture of your calling on our lives. But Lord, it's not about one day a year helping folks. It, it's about lives that have been set free and in turn are used by you to set others free. God, give us that vision. Give us your vision of grace and mercy and partnership. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, table is a picture of captives being set free. It's a picture of the blind having their spiritual sight restored. It's a celebration. Uh, you think about those, those folks that, that got home being rescued uh, from uh, that prisoner of war camp. And, and I would guess, I've never read this, but I would guess that at some point maybe many of them raised a glass and toasted those who set them free. Uh, and that's what we're doing this morning, in a sense. 
we are celebrating the victory that we experienced through the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And so that's why we always say at Green Tree, this is not a, a Green Tree Community Church table. The communion table at Green Tree isn't Green Trees. It's the Lord Jesus. And so if you're a disciple of his this morning, we welcome you to your Lord's table, not to our table. It's his. We're simply here representing him. So if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you've been set free by faith in Christ alone, we invite you to come to his table. If you're still wrestling with that and you're still thinking about that, we don't want you to feel under any compulsion to uh, participate in communion. It, it won't really be of any uh, service to you, it won't be of any help to you. Uh, and it also would be doing something that you really don't believe. And so we don't want you to feel at all like, you know, I got to do this because everybody's looking at me. Trust me, we all have enough sin in our lives. We're not looking at anybody else, right? But if you are a disciple of Jesus, let me invite you to prayerfully come to your Lord's table and rejoice in what he has done for you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we bless your name this morning as our, our hero, the one who overcame uh, our, our spiritual poverty and blindness and, and the oppression of the evil one, and you set us free at such a terrible cost. Your life given on the cross, suffering the wrath of God, so that we could experience his grace and his forgiveness. We could actually become objects of his grace. Your perfect righteousness given to us and, and the filth of our sin taken away and placed upon you on the cross. So Lord, we don't come to this table with any sense of, of self-righteousness. We don't come uh, with any smugness. We come in humility and with great joy and thankfulness in our hearts for what you have done for us. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be spiritually present in the, these elements and that you would nourish your people. We pray in your name. Amen.